I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more delightful reads of the season is the new book from the journalist and music critic Joel Selvin, Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. It's an exciting book because he begins with a group of California teens, the class of 1959 from uh, University High School. There are two kids who ended up becoming Jan and Dean, Nancy Sinatra, and uh, some of the members of the Beach Boys are all going into adulthood, as it were, into a new decade, and they would, through their respective music, come to evoke the spirit of uh, modern California that remains today. It was fun, sunny, young, and though the brightness of the era would dim with events like the assassination of John Kennedy, race riots, and, the, and increasing involvement in Vietnam, the music endures today. Incidentally, Joel has uh, put together a great playlist capturing the spirit of his book on Spotify. It's fun listening to it as you're reading the book. Joel Selvin is an award-winning journalist and music critic who covered pop music for the San Francisco Chronicle for over 35 years. His writing has appeared in sundry publications like Rolling Stone, the Los Angeles Times, and Billboard. He's also been noted for contributing liner notes to dozens of albums, He's written over a dozen books, many of them bestsellers. Visit joelselvin.com for more. This new book is published by House of Anansi Press. He joined me from uh, San Francisco 10 days ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Joel Selvin. Mr. Selvin, good morning. Glad to be here, Joe. Nice to talk to you. What, what, now, I looked you up, so you're, you're not old enough, obviously, to have graduated from um, University High in, in 1958. What was your personal connection to this class of 1958? I think one of my older brothers uh, graduated from high school in 58. I certainly remember uh, uh, them going through that whole rock and roll uh Rubbing uh, uh, butch wax in your blue jeans and and uh, in, you know uh, going to the malt shop era. I was uh-huh. a little young for it, but you know I, I, it was happening in my house. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the the great part about reading your book is is we see in these years from from the time this class at least graduates in 1958 um, through to almost a decade, nearly a decade that you write about. Uh, how music's changed as well, and it's because of them. Um, it, it, your contention is is that the, the, these folks, these people that you write about in the book, they really changed music. Did, did they set out to do that? Did, was that their goal, say? No, and that's really the fascinating thing for me. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, my books tend to be about musicians more than music, and, and I view musicians as heroes. Uh-huh. Uh, and see the you know like athletes or warriors sure. or you know the the, the, the archetype uh, and like for instance there's a number of recording sessions that are sort of described in detail those to me are like war uh, battle scenes mm-hmm. uh, and these were all heroic journeys they weren't people that were trying to you know cynically make a, a buck or two although you know didn't mind that part of it, but it really was people that were smitten by rock and roll who saw a mission in their lives to create these records and and to further the art form and and, and that's what happened rather uh, extraordinarily if you look at like the thing the 
begins with this record, Jenny Lee, uh-huh. which is recorded in Jan Berry's garage and ends with Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, which is, you know, eight years later and arguably one of the greatest pop records ever made. It's fascinating to also see, as you, as you talk about certain songs in, in your book, uh, about this idea of California that, that um, I guess remains today. I mean, that's how a lot of us view this place. Um, in term, you say something near the end of the book that, that I just found fascinating is that, is, is that you know most people go to California, um, but but these folks, these men and women, um, they were of there, aren't they? They had this birthright to the California lifestyle. Their their parents were of the greatest generation who lived through the Depression and the and the World War, and they had set up in some kind of middle-class or lower-middle-class splendor, these young people who knew no insecurity of, uh, of economic deprivation or uh, cultural alienation. Uh, the high school was 10 minutes from the beach. Hey, let's go play volleyball after school. Um, it was sunny year-round. They owned their own cars. There were the Los Angeles was built for cars. Yeah. And... Uh, 1958 is also just about the time when this crazy sport of surfing starts to spread around the coast. So all these are factors that were that were playing into this California lifestyle, and and the the records, the songs came from those people's lives. They really did know people who drove Woodies with no rear windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, uh, not just the music, because you also talk in the book about I forget her name. Was it Catherine Coleman? Who's uh, Kathy Conner? Kathy Conner, yes. pardon me. Um, who um, whose uh, diaries, I guess, uh, inspired her father to write the, the novel, uh, which subsequently became the book and then the TV show Gidget. Um, Gidget was on the best-selling charts. Yeah. The same time that On the Road by Jack Kerouac was. I wonder which one ended up being more influential in our culture. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that I found fascinating is, is music up to that point, the, the late 50s, um, was largely shaped in New York. And then we see through um, um, uh, Phil Spector's uh, uh, early life, uh, this shift um, out to California. Um, did, did he see that himself, or, 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 or was he just sort of, sort of riding the wave, if you will? Well, Spector grew up in, in Los Angeles. He went starting in high school. And he began his career there and actually had that first number one hit, To Know Him Is To Love Him by the Teddy Bears. While he, this summer, he left high school. Uh-huh. So he was like 17 years old. But his ambition led him pretty quickly to New York, where he, he came under the tutelage of, of uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who were like the leading independent record producers in New York at the time. And he had quite considerable success as a producer in New York. But he started recording in Los Angeles in 62 when he wanted to cut the song He's a Rebel and found himself in Los Angeles and in a hurry to um, cut the song. So he assembled a group of Los Angeles musicians who, it was really the beginning of what came to be known as the Wrecking Crew. And from then on out, still left his office in New York but did all his recording with these same musicians in Los Angeles. Uh, until 1965, when he then relocated to Los Angeles 
by which time the whole power center had shifted, largely because of the records that these guys had generated and, and, the, and the record business that was coming out of Los Angeles because of these kids from the late 50s that had taken over. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you write in the book as well, they weren't called the Wrecking Crew at the time, were they? That came much later, didn't it? You know, Hal Blaine, the drummer, was such a, an expansive personality. He just was, you know, he had a million jokes, and he was just a outgoing, funny guy to 5,000 photos of every session. Uh, and, of course, was the, you know, anchor to all those great, great records. He played on more hit records than any other person in Guinness Book of Records. Yeah. And that was his sort of, like in, his, in the 80s, when he was writing his uh, autobiography and sort of promoting himself, uh, he, he called the band the Wrecking Crew. Mm. And, and it stuck. And now Steve Douglas, the sax player who actually contracted that original session and put Hal in the drum chair, he was annoyed by that uh, uh, adaptation for the rest of his life. It's like, you know, how, how a presumptuous of Hal. <laughs> but Hal was a presumptuous kind of guy. Yeah. Anyway, there's a great documentary movie by one of the guitar player's sons, uh, Denny Tedesco. Uh-huh. Uh, his father, Tommy Tedesco, played on so many records. And, and it's called The Wrecking Crew. It's an absolutely wonderful uh, portrait of, of, of these really fabulous musicians who were the new generation of session players. And yeah. session players itself was sort of a new idea in music. It came out after the Second World War. Sort of the, you know, radio show orchestras and, and that right, kind of thing right, created yeah. this whole way of playing music where you could actually stay home and just work in studios. Indeed. indeed. And these guys in Los Angeles were the first rock and roll generation to mm. assume that role. Although, uh, 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 in the, before that, it was like jazz and, and, and big band musicians who were kind of slumming to make rock and roll records and looking down their nose at mm, it. Mm, yeah. These guys showed up in jeans and t-shirts and just played a hell out of music. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we touched a moment ago about the, the sort of lifestyle that, that, that this music evoked, um, surfing and cars. Why do you think this this kind of music appealed to, to, to middle America and, and, and not just people on, on either coast? Because it, it did become universal, didn't it? I mean, in, in England it became very yeah. influential, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it struck some extraordinary chord, uh, not just across the country in America, but throughout the world. The idea of this California paradise, uh, you know where I sort of like, uh, uh, locate the origin is, is the opening of Disneyland in 1955 because Walt Disney just mercilessly promoted that crazy amusement park out in the strawberry fields of Anaheim mm. on his weekly television show. What was it called? Wonderful World of Disney, Walt right. Disney. Cause it had a bunch yeah. of names, but it was always one of the most popular TV shows in the country. And so kids all over were seeing this amazing thing happening in, in, in the weeds in California, and, and, and it began to create this image of this golden state. I remember a television advertisement for uh, uh, American Airlines back in the early 60s, uh-huh. black and white TV. Jet travel was a brand new thing, and, they, and there's Chet Huntley, this, this new oh, yeah. man. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay. And he's standing on a California beach, and he says, California, if Columbus had landed here, would we have moved east? <laughs> it, 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 um, the other thing about your book that's so great, Joel, is as I'm reading it, um, 
it's so visual, and uh, I can't help but think that this would make such a such a wonderful movie or a TV show. But I guess the the, the music rights would be expensive, wouldn't it? They're all available if you're producing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, those those rights have all been acquired by multinational corporations who are in the business of licensing the motion picture uh, uh, producers. So you know, I welcome all offers. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think this is a wonderful visual story of a time and place that is just unmatched in uh, our, our sort of our our mutual uh, uh, collective subconscious uh, imagination. And, and it was real. It, it, for a moment, it was real. It was those people's lives, the, you know, the pickup trucks with surfboards in the back and, and the guitars on the back seat. I mean, yeah. And at the heart of the book are, are these characters, or the, the people themselves. Um, Jill Gibson is, is someone that, that is very memorable in your book. Um, she's someone that you talked to for this book, but I understand she's been reluctant to talk heretofore. Is that right? She's um, Jill's such an interesting character and personality. For one thing, she's just severely introverted, but not shy. And she doesn't look back at her life at all. It's always been a forward motion for her. And this was her youth, which she cut herself off from in her 20s and, and moved to New York and subsequently Italy to become a, a painter and a sculptor, and she's mm -hmm. widely exhibited. She makes her living uh, um, uh, selling jewelry she makes over the Internet. So this is like a long ago and far away, and as you can tell from the book, those are painful memories. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, she's been reluctant to be terribly forthcoming about this or participated, but for some reason, um, she was, I met with her in 2014, and, and she agreed to, to cooperate with me on, on this project, and to me, that was the linchpin that made me decide that I could go ahead and do this, because it was such a boys club, and I really wanted to have prominent women in the narrative so that we could see what roles they played and, and experienced the kind of tension and anxiety and rewards that were available for them. So I brought Jill out of the background really purposefully and deliberately. And, and, and I'm really glad to hear you say what you did because Jill Gibson was much more than just somebody's girlfriend. Yeah, I guess that's how people uh, viewed her as. I mean, you know, she, she was with Jan Berry and then um, uh, later on with, with the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, 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 you know, that's how she's been painted over the years. Um, in terms of Jan Berry, uh, I'll, I'll mention him because he's such a central character as well in the book. Um, you, you, um, you end the book with him, and it, it's such a beautiful scene. Um, but but what was his? I mean, if he had to chart his trajectory through these years, um, it's it's a, such a fascinating story in and of itself. I mean, you could have written a book about him, right? Oh, uh, he is a, 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 a driven, ambitious, uh, multi-layered, complex character. Uh, he, he was uh, on the top ten while he was a senior in high school. Uh, he never stopped going to school. He was in med school when uh, uh, the Dead Man's Curve came out mm -hmm. uh, and didn't sleep much. He uh, took uh, or uh, orchestration classes at uh, USC and uh, arranged and wrote out all his uh, productions. He was very advanced and has never been given adequate credit for the innovations that he created in the studio. And he was a clear inspiration 
inspiration to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and somebody who was in many ways a mentor to Brian, who showed Brian how to hire session musicians and who showed Brian how to stack and overdub harmony vocals in the studio. But, you know, he he kind of lost uh, a grip of the, you know, the pop, the the salt uh, as things started to shift into the long-haired English folk rock scene, uh-huh. and by the time he crashed his car, you know, he was teetering on pop obsolescence. Yeah. Uh, but still driven and determined to be successful, just, you know, the next record was going to put him back on the top. And and what I found fascinating um, about, about Jan and Dean in particular um, is how you describe their relationship, because that does evolve over the years, as all relationships do. I think you equate it to, um, I guess, some of the, the, the those great comedy duos where where um, it, it's really about the work and nothing really personal, is it? Uh, they were friendly, yeah. but they weren't friends. For instance, Jill didn't remember Dean ever stopping by their apartment to like hang out and shoot the breeze. Uh, he was at all the work sessions, but he wasn't even at the studio if he didn't have to sing. Yeah. Dean was a, 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 a particular kind of California character the word laid back has come to describe. Mm. You know, informal, casual, unambitious, low-key, and, and perfectly adaptable to put up with the kind of aggressive, uh, control freak uh, uh, personality of a, a Jan Berry. You know, he could buy a new car every year as long as he put up with Jan. And that was fine with him. He lived at home with his parents all through school and all through the Jan and Dean hits. He only moved out, uh, uh, you know, like a few months before uh, Jan's car crash. Mm-hmm. And he's socking away the dough and going to school himself. Neither mm-hmm. their parents thought this rock and roll thing was going to work out <laughs> and made them go to school. <laughs> Um, but but uh, speaking of parents, um, uh, Murray Wilson, who you read, who comes up in the book, uh, uh, Brian Wilson's father, um, how did he see what his son or both of his sons were doing with, with, with the Beach Boys? I mean, he doesn't come off as a terribly sympathetic character um, in, in the book. Murray is a very sympathetic no. character, you know. He, he's a abusive father. He was a drunk. He was a you know, uh, controlling, mean, and, and, and vindictive guy uh-huh. who was perfectly capable of shouting at Brian uh, during the I Get Around sessions when he's like six, seven hit records into his career. I know more about the Beach Boys than you do. Um, and, you know, Brian had to fire his father, physically slamming him against the wall and, and creating this huge uh, fissure in his family situation in order to continue to lead the Beach Boys on to greater and greater things. Murray had his revenge, though. They, they put him in charge of the publishing because they thought, well, that's something Dad can do, and he won't cause any problems, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So in 1969, Murray sold the publishing for a lousy one million bucks to Herb Alpert. Oh, it broke Brian's heart. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned Herb Alpert. That's another character. Lou Adler. I mean, these are these are fascinating characters in of themselves, and 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 people should really pick up the book because they they can really come alive in in your book. Um, there's a great playlist at the end 
uh, of songs that, that I guess we should be listening to as we're reading. Is there one particular song that stands out for you? I know, I know that's a terrible question to ask because cause there are so many that you know come to mind. Well, there's certain pivotal pieces, there's no doubt. And, by the way, there's a Hollywood Eden uh, playlist up on Spotify, if you're interested. Indeed, um, right. And, uh, first of all, He's a Rebel was a, a, a seriously pivotal record in the history of rock and roll, but it's crucial in the development of Los Angeles. That's the beginning of the Wrecking Crew sessions. Mm-hmm. Then the River Deep Mountain High by Cantina, which was Bill Spector's masterpiece, which was rejected by the public, and then Good Vibrations, right. which was Brian's parallel masterpiece, which was embraced by the public. So those are the three pivotal pieces in the in in the book's uh, sort of you know musical spine. Yeah. Along the way, there's a lot of stops like "Alley Oop" by the Hollywood Argyles, which is an incredibly important record to the development of the Los Angeles recording scene. Although it's not really well remembered as a classic now, you know. <laughs> yeah. And of course, "Mr. Tambourine Man" by the Birds was the beginning of folk rock all around the world, and behind it was a, a, a surf music specialist, Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son. Right. So all these things were tied together in ways that weren't necessarily immediately obvious. Uh, Los you, Angeles, Hollywood, yeah. was a small town. Indeed, indeed, yeah, because you, you mentioned uh, Melcher, um, uh, Doris Day, of course, so we all remember her. Um, uh, uh, Marty, her husband at the time, uh, what was his job? Marty Melcher's another bad guy. Yeah. Uh, he uh, uh, courted um, Doris. Uh, he was her agent and uh, uh, became romantically involved with him. At the time, uh, he was very solicitous of eight-year-old Terry. But as mm. soon as he got married, Terry was off to boarding school. Dad was cold and harsh and, 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 and disciplinarian. And uh, he had to beg to get to go to finish up uh, high school at Beverly Hills. Uh, and, you know, when uh, Marty died in, I think, about 1966, 67, uh, they found out that he'd embezzled all of uh, Doris Day's money, and she was essentially broke. Uh, and Terry got out of the record business and, you know, put his mother's business affairs back in order. That's when she started that TV the series. The TV show, yeah. Pay off the, yeah. You know, Marty uh, Melcher embezzlement. Yeah. So he was a bad guy, and... and, and you know, uh, it, it, it wasn't good with his son Terry at all. Indeed, and and, and Terry um, was known for success, I guess, behind the scenes uh, in terms of, of music. But but he started, I guess. Um, uh, did he want to be sort of in front of the microphone? He tried that out. And much to everybody's surprise, he wanted to be a singer. Yeah, and he, and and of course, it was easy for him to get a record deal with his mother's label. Yeah. So he had a, one record as a singer, and then he brought in a young unknown producer named Phil Spector, which was his second single, and it wasn't very successful either. But he had gotten a taste for the record business, and he was not so comfortable being a performer, and he gravitated rather quickly into a kind of executive training program, because Columbia at that point was just you know, a dead issue on the pop charts. And one of the heads of East Coast A&R, a guy named David Kaprilak, who uh, undoubtedly was you know, courting some favor with one of his big stars, put Terry into a, a training program for record production, and it worked out very well. Mm-hmm. He, within a year, he put the rip chords on the charts, and, and 
that was like the, the, the kind of pop hit that Columbia hadn't had in years, like since the heyday of Johnny Mathis. Yeah. You mentioned River Deep Mountain High, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a song that, that I've kept on my iPod over the years. I've got it on my phone now. Um, it, it, it's still unbelievable to hear today. Um, you mentioned that, I mean, it is a masterpiece of, of, of Spectres and, and Tina Turner's, and, and um, actually Ike didn't have much to do with it, did he? As a matter of fact, uh, part of the agreement to do the record included a provision where Ike was not allowed in the studio, but Ike didn't care. This yeah. is one of the biggest producers in the record business taking on his act. As long as the record came out as being by Ike and Tina, right. he didn't mind. Yeah. It turned out they showed up the last night when Tina did her vocals, and you know he walked in and, and shot off his mouth a little. Then he heard the track. And he sat in the corner quietly for the rest of the night. <laughs> you, you described so well that session as well. That I mean, it, it really is a, you know a, a battle scene almost in in a in a, in a war movie. Um, you you said a moment ago that you know when it came out it wasn't a hit, and yet today it's one of these iconic songs of the era. When did that change in terms of how the public perceived that song? Good question. It really was a slow rolling acceptance of, of things, and I suspect that its final, uh, uh, you know, imprimatur was when Tina became the big rock star in the eighties, and, mm. and all her work was sort of reevaluated in the light of that. But at the time it was released, uh, the, the black radio stations and the, uh, the natural home for an Argentina record wanted nothing to do with something that sounded so pop, yeah. and the pop stations. They didn't play Argentina Turner records, and there were a lot of people out there that really didn't like Phil Spector, and, and they yeah. were happy to have the opportunity not to play his record. So it was, I think, got as far up the charts as number eighty-eight, and within a month, it was gone entirely. Huh. And then I guess it, it, you you write in the book as well that it. it um Sort of found a home in Europe, didn't it? Like it, it did well there. As it was hit in England. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that the song that if, I know? You know, this is a this is a radio interview, if you will. Um, if you had to describe what the wall of sound sounded like, I mean, is that the the best example? Do you think? It certainly is the kind of uh, ultimate piece of that of, of their experiments in that way. Yeah, Spectre and the arranger Jack Nietzsche had been developing this literally since He's a Rebel. And uh, there's some really magnificent examples of, the, of their work with the Vaughnettes and, and with the Crystals, but, uh, and of course the Righteous Brothers. Sure, but yeah. that, the, the River Deep Mountain High is the pinnacle of that, their whole artistic journey in that regard. Um, any, of the, any subsequent work which reflected back on that, say, like, you know, Spectre's production of uh, the George Harrison album, All Things Much Past, was over the other side of the, of the bell curve, you know, was, was uh -huh. looking back on, on, on River Deep Mountain High. Yeah. Uh, people come apart as we follow them in your book, Brian Wilson, of course. I mean, that's a story that, that a lot of people already know. Uh, in, in terms of Spectre himself, I mean, um, can you see um, in his early years... Could you foresee um, what ended up happening to him, both both mentally and otherwise? His father committed suicide when he was eight years old. His mother was an overbearing, 
probably schizophrenic woman who never let up on him. His sister was, uh, older sister was certified mentally ill and spent time in an institution. They moved to Los Angeles in time for Phil to enter Fairfax High. He was short, swarthy, acne-riddled, uh, obnoxious, and uh, pretty much alienated from all the, the social and uh, cultural aspects of, of, of Los Angeles High School. It was Steve Douglas who, who took him under his wing in high school. Steve was a couple years older, and their mothers were friends, and Steve's mother insisted that Steve put Phil in his band, and, and, and he didn't really like Phil that much, but Phil could play guitar very well. So that was sort of how Phil crawled into Los Angeles as a really, you know, mm -hmm. emotionally destroyed teenager through music. And you can see him in the Fairfax High yearbooks. He's in the choir, he's in the band, he's in the orchestra. But, I, you know, I don't think he was one of the popular guys who dated the cheerleaders. You know, the, 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 as I was reading the book, you know, there are songs that I was familiar with and songs that I wasn't familiar with, so I, you know, I put them on my, my Spotify on the phone. And, um, I mean, this music is, what, 50, 60 years old? Um, yeah. It still remains fresh. It still remains, you know, relevant today. And, and um, do you have a reason why that that, that is? Well, because they were created in such innocence with so little uh, calculation, they're, they have an integrity that the, 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 the clever people who are trying to uh, crash the pop charts just don't. And, and over the years, uh, you know, artifice kind of fades away, mm -hmm. but sincerity, the sincerity of the emotional intent of those things is so much a part of what they are, because they're not great records in, in, in you know, they got to be great. Uh, certainly, nobody's ever made a better record than Good Vibrations. But th it was a pathway of, of in, that they took was so sincere, and, 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 that, and that stays with the records. That, that, that's earnest uh, uh, innocence and uh, lack of, of artificiality. It, it, it's, that, that's what their lasting ingredient is. And and despite all these bad characters that that are throughout the book, um, it's 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 amazing that the, that these kids essentially emerged um, <laughs> almost unscathed. A lot of them, you know, there's a lot of trouble along the way, a lot of blood too. Um, but it, it, it's just a fascinating book and and one that I enjoyed reading a great deal. What's next for you, uh, Joel? Well, I've got a couple of projects I'm looking at. You know. Uh, you know, along the lines of these heavily researched historical accounts, and then also, you know, uh, I love the As Told To books. Mm. The, uh, I love reading them. I love doing them. Uh, they're a lot less uh, lighter lifting than these projects. Uh, I, I've done those with um, the tattoo artist Ed Hardy. I did one with Sammy Hagar uh -huh. uh, and, and the record company executive L.A. Reed. Um, so, uh, you know, something, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having too much fun doing this to stop now. Yeah. By the way, when you write, because, you, you know, you're, you're a noted writer in your own right, um, did you have music going on behind you? Sometimes I play uh, instrumental music. Uh, it, uh, my feeling about uh, 
instrumental music is that it's in, entirely perceived intu- as, uh, intuitively, and that when you add lyrics and have somebody sing, that it engages the verbal part of your brain and, mm. and, and, and shifts hemispheres. I, I, that's just my, there's no science behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just my sense. So when I write, you know, I tend to listen to uh, uh, jazz and uh, uh, some classical music. Uh, Eric Satie, because he doesn't have a lot of notes. He, he likes whole notes, and, and so things sort of hang in the air. Yeah, uh, yeah I got all kinds of crazy ideas about background music. Yeah. <laughs> do, 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 do you listen widely? I mean, are you, are you listening to, say, say, contemporary music as well as, say, um, opera even or, or things like that? I can't say that I have a great feeling for the contemporary music. You know, I worked as the pop music critic of the Chronicle starting uh-huh. about 1970, and I, and, and I left the paper in '09. Fully the last 10 years of the paper, I struggled to deal with contemporary music. I remember going to my third Britney Spears concert, and I, it was like drowning. I, I sat there <laughs> in the audience trying to wonder what I'd done to get here and how, how I could possibly contribute to any conversation about this matter. I mean, I... I took LSD and danced to the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore. What am I doing here? What is this anyway? I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's a great image, Joel. Um, but by the way, the other thing I wanted to know: uh, How did this book end up with House of Anansi here in, in Canada? Because all the ridiculous American publishers didn't see this, and uh, uh, my editor Charlie Winton. Uh, who also published and edited my Bert Burns back, Here Comes Tonight, uh-huh. um, he, he had a personal relationship with the head of the, of the house. This is way outside their normal uh, affair, but they've been incredibly supportive. I think it's a pet project for them, you know, maybe a pilot project for expanding themselves. They've been great. I love Canada right now. I'm very, very taken with uh, working with <laughs> it, 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 I can see why they picked it up because it is a great book, and, and you're you're a marvelous writer. And I don't say that to patronize you, but um, it, it um, you have it, it, there's such a rhythm to it, and I can understand why you you know music as well as you do because it it it, it really it, it it bleeds through the page, man, and it, it's just great. And and I I can't thank you enough for the time you've spent uh, with me chatting about this book. Congratulations and and good luck with it, Joel. Thanks for all the abundant praise, Joe. It's been a blast talking with you. The book is called Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. It's published by House of Anansi Press. Visit Joel's website, incidentally, at joelselvin.com. He joined me from San Francisco, California. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plato.